listeners, are you concerned that the planet is at a critical tipping point and time is running out? Do you believe your life purpose is to make a positive difference in the world? If so, you might be a member of the Golden Motorcycle Gang. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guests today are Jack Canfield and William Gladstone, the co-authors of a very timely new book, The Golden Motorcycle Gang, A Story of Transformation. Now, Jack Canfield is most widely known as the co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, which has sold more than 500 million copies worldwide, and another bestseller, The Success Principles. He's a leading figure in the self-help movement, is considered America's number one success coach, and was featured a featured teacher in the movies The Secret and Tapping the Source. Jack is also the CEO of the Canfield Training Group, and the founder of the Transformational Leadership Council. William Gladstone is best known for his international bestseller, The Twelve. He is also the co-author of Tapping the Source and co-producer of the film of the same name. Now, in addition, he's a literary agent for many best-selling authors, including Eckhart Tolle, Neil Donald Walsh, and he's the founder of Waterside Productions, as well as a trustee of the International Club of Budapest. So, my two underachievers, welcome, gentlemen. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thank you. Pleasure, <laughs> <Hi>, Miriam. <laughs> Hello, Bill. Jack, let's kick off by telling us about the vision that you had that inspired the Golden Motorcycle Gang book. Well, I was in graduate school at the University of Massachusetts in the School of Education, probably around 1973, something like that. And I was in a class where they asked us to close our eyes and go back to the time when you chose to become a teacher. And most people went back to the fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Tuttle, who inspired them, or they went to a high school teacher who inspired them, or maybe they taught in a summer camp one year and they realized they had this teaching ability and wanted to use it. I, quite shockingly to me and everyone else in the class, went back to before I was born, just flipped into this sense of being a spirit, flying through the air, looking down on earth, and going, oh, my God, there's a war going on down there. I was born in 1944, and uh, we, you know, it was World War II, and I thought, I ought to go down and help out. You know, this is like passing an, an accident on the freeway. You'd stop if you were the first one there. So all these other spirits that were with me, which I kind of have nicknamed the Golden Motorcycle Gang because we were all pretty irreverent, kind of like the Hells Angels driving on their motorcycles, you know, with their beards and their leather jackets <laughs> down the, the highway, and so I just said, let's go down and help out. And they went, come on, you're being codependent. You know, don't do that. We're on vacation here. I said, no, I got to go. So basically a number of us decided to come down and be born. And as you know, once you make that decision, you kind of forget you made it and, and you're in earth life. And so I was sitting there, you know, just having a normal childhood and college education and so forth. And then this event happened where I had this awareness and I realized, wow, I'm not just a history teacher. I'm a teacher with a capital T, and that's what my job is here. And um, so I, I referred to this group as the Golden Motorcycle Gang. And I started meeting people probably around my late 30s, early 40s, who I had this amazing resonance with, this harmonic sense of connectedness. And uh, I would say, wow, you're a member of the Golden Motorcycle Gang. And they would go, what? And I'd tell them the story and they'd go, yeah, I guess I am. Mm -hmm. So uh, Bill and I were having dinner one night and I told him that story, and he said, wow, I think I'm a member. And I said, yeah, absolutely you are. I gave him this little golden motorcycle that I, 
I had bought about 20 of these from some Chinese import company, and I was handing them out to people who I'd meet. And uh, that's how the, 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 the book came about. <laughs> that's a great story. You know, one of the most fascinating aspects of the book to me, Jack, was your personal story. What was it about your life story that led you into the human potential movement? Well, it was really quite by accident. I mean, I think if I look back on it from this perspective, I realized that, that a lot of my childhood, which was, you know, I had an abusive father, an alcoholic, and so forth, that I was being kind of made more sensitive and compassionate and, and hypersensitive to those kind of things. And so I had that background coming up. But I think what happened for me was uh, two things. One, when I was in college, I took this course called uh, Social Relations 10, and it was really about human intercommunication and dynamic, kind of an old encounter group back in those days. And that woke me up to the fact that I had feelings. I mean, I was someone who was just pretty much in my head all the time. The second thing that happened was a couple years later, I'm in graduate school. I'm sitting in a laundromat, minding my own business, reading some book, and this guy comes up and says, put your book down and talk to me. I went, okay. (laughs) His name was Frank Brody. He was a graduate student in economics, and um, he was trying to figure out for his doctorate, if you were to spend $1 in Chicago to improve the city, where would you spend it? Would it be education, beautification, you know, working with the, the corporations, whatever? So anyway, he was a cool guy, and we got to be friends, and he invited me to this Living Philosopher series where they had these different people that were amazing beings coming in every week and giving a, a lecture. And this guy named uh, Herbert Otto was the director of the National Center for Human Potential, and he talked about we were only using 5% of our potential, and I thought, wow, I want to use more. So I went up to him, and we talked, and he guided me to the W. Clement and Jesse B. Stone Foundation, which had a program called Oasis, which was like a growth center much like Esalen or Omega or one of those places where people go for weekend workshops. Anyway, I took 30 weekend workshops in one year. It was like a hungry person that hadn't been fed for that emotional, spiritual connectedness part of myself. And uh, that's really how I got into it. And then the other part was I started teaching these things in my classroom to my kids and kids who were dropouts and kids who were, um, you know, I, I would have kids sneak into school who were on probation, take my classes, sneak out again. So, <laughs> It was amazing. They didn't want to lose their street cred. Yeah, they didn't want to lose that, but they, they also didn't want to get caught, you know, and so forth. But they wanted to, to learn what I was teaching. And some of those kids who were gang members have gone on to be CEOs of corporations. And that's when I realized, wow, I was onto something here that we really needed to be focusing on the development of human potential. So uh, that's how it happened. Wow. Wow. It's interesting you mentioned Clement Stone. I loved um, a quote that you, you ascribed to him in the book. You said that um, that when when working with people, the important thing is to focus on where your interests and goals overlap, and not where they differ. Yes, that is so important. Yeah, I was literally in a meeting with him, very very brief meeting, and uh, he was a very 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 conservative Republican, and I was a very 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 liberal Democrat. And uh, he said, you know, we can fight about what we disagree or we can realize we both want the same thing. And when it comes to education, we want to empower kids. We want to focus on, you know, helping gang members get out of gangs and become, you know, find work and so forth. So let's not argue about our philosophies and all that. Let's focus on education because that's where we agree. And that was his philosophy with everybody. That's why he was so successful. Mm -hmm. He always focused on what can we do together that neither of us could do alone and let's go do that. 
And uh, mm. as a result of that, I, I still to this day live that principle. It's been very helpful for me. Yeah. You described your awakening during the Vietnam protest era to the value of not blindly following authority. Do you see any parallels to the protest movement springing up today? Totally. I think that uh, whether it's the uh, Tea Party on the right or the uh, you know the Occupy Wall Street and Occupy every other city on the left, uh, what happened in the Arab Spring with all these uh, people rising up against dictatorships, um, that that's really what's happening is people are realizing that they don't have to follow blindly, you know, the government or the leaders that they can solve their own problems and stand up against things that don't work. And when you've got, you know. Pretty much 20% of Americans, that's one out of every five that are unemployed. Uh, we have an economic system that's not doing what it needs to do. And so it has to be re, re, recreated. Uh, I don't think we need to do away with capitalism totally, but we definitely need to change some of the structure of the money that flows into Washington that controls everything so that it all goes up to the rich. And you see these people, I've just been studying the, 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 the movement the last couple of weeks, they're, you know, what they're trying to do is beautiful in terms of the way they're trying to govern themselves, the nonviolence, the communication, uh, the support, the library they've started there. I mean, it's just, it, I think it's very inspirational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was struck by an incident you described at the Newport Folk Festival that you said transformed you from a small-time boy to a world citizen. How important was that in your life, and was there is there any parallel today that could have such an impact? Well, I think any number of things can have an impact. I mean, recently I went to Cameroon in Africa and spent 12 days there with people that were extremely poor, extremely impoverished. And I spent uh, 12 days in the rainforest with the Achuar Indians in the Amazon basin, people that live pretty much like they lived almost 2,000 years ago. And those were life-changing experiences, much like the Newport Folk Festival was uh, I was there when Bob Dylan went electric. <laughs> it was like a, a pretty amazing. Half the audience booed, and the other went, "Cool sound. I like this." You know, and uh, I just, I, I, it's, it's almost like that movie Forrest Gump, where he keeps showing up at these, uh, you know, turning points in his. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of those. Whether it was the civil rights movement or the Vietnam War, I went to Jesse Jackson's church in Chicago, just all by accident. It seemed, but as I look back, it's almost like an orchestrated life that I had where I was being guided to these experiences that would transform me. If I take credit for anything, Miriam, it's that I listened and that I cooperated rather than I resisted. Mm -hmm. Bill, you've had some life-altering experiences as well. Tell us about, for example, your your near-death experience. Sure. That's actually the topic of my novel, The Twelve, and I go in much more detail, but we do have some of that in The Golden Motorcycle Gang, and that experience was really important because I don't think I would have responded to Jack's story of the Golden Motorcycle Gang with the same level of enthusiasm had I not had my own unusual experience. And what happened to me was I was sick with the flu and I went to see the family doctor and he gave me a shot of penicillin, not knowing that I was allergic to penicillin. And the experience that I had was he he gave me the shot. He said, I'll be back in two minutes. The nurse will be here. Just stay seated in this chair. And my next conscious awareness was as a light being, if you will, in the corner of the office, a little small uh, operating room that I was in at the time I got the shot and feeling surrounded by these entities, surrounded by love and bliss, just the most amazing happiness 
you, can, you can't even describe. It's beyond description. It's unearthly. But in a moment, I was broken out of this sort of just pure contemplation of bliss and lights and things that I was saying and heard this loud noise. And so my attention was directed to the floor and I saw a man making sort of shouting. And I, I and then focused more and I said, oh, that man's wearing a white coat. Oh, that man's a doctor. Uh, he seems very upset. Um, oh, he's upset because he's trying to get the attention of that body. Oh, why won't that body respond? Oh, that's my body. I better get back <laughs> to my body so that doctor won't be upset. And then the next thing I remember back in my body is opening my eyes and seeing these terror, I, terror in the doctor's face just relax into relief. And then him telling me, you know, you turned green, you had no pulse, all your, you know, you were, you know, dead. I thought you were gone. I'm, you know, you, yeah, you must have had a reaction. And then they observed me for a few hours and, you know, I was fine and I went home. For the first couple of weeks after that experience, I was like lying to tell everybody, you can't believe this. We don't actually die. There's something that happens to us after death. But of course, this was in the early 1960s. And, <laughs> you know, I was a high school student and my teachers were kind of looking at me funny and saying, well, we have explanations for this. The oxygen was cut off from your brain. You hallucinated that experience, you know. We've got a football game against our number one rival on Saturday. Just focus on the game, okay? And, you know, other, you know, responses equally less enthusiastic. So I kind of just put that away as, well, I know I really experienced this. Occasionally I had doubts about it. And then, you know, when I wrote the novel, The Twelve, I sort of came out of the closet with, no, this really was real and, and you know, I'm going to share it. And then as soon as you share something as intimate as that, you start finding out, wow, Actually, millions of people have had near-death experiences, and some of them are very similar to what I experienced. And then when Jack told me his story, I was like, oh, I know exactly what Jack was feeling when he visualized himself as a spirit being going through space without a care in the world, because I don't think it's a story. I think it's real, and I think we need to share this with others. So for me, that, that unusual experience was very, very important in connecting me with Jack and the Golden Motorcycle Gang. Well, let's get back to the motorcycle gang. Um, how do you? How does one know if they belong to this gang? Well, well, I think that anybody who is committed to making a difference on Earth that is aware that they're more than just an ego or a personality, but that they are a spirit in a body, and that they have some sense of something bigger that's part of their purpose that they are a member of the gang. It's not just the people that I know in my small circle. There are people all over the world that are working to bring about peace, ecological sustainability, personal and social transformation, and so forth. And I think that if, if, if that's part of who you are, if you feel that you... You know, I talked to a woman last night on a, a late-night radio show who said... She, she called in crying. She said, I always knew I was different, but I didn't know why or how. Now I know why. I have this purpose, like you guys have, to contribute. And when you grow up in Arkansas, as she was doing, that's not the normal conversation anymore than it was for Bill back in high school in the 60s when he had his near-death experience. But I think now more and more people are talking about it, coming out of the woodwork, if you will, and out of the shadows. And whether it's on Oprah or shows like yours, uh, there, there's a voice for this. And so I think that if you have a sense of a purpose and a destiny – and you feel that we're more meant to cooperate and collaborate and come from love and compassion, 
than greed and ego and competition and dominance, then you're part of the gang. And if you want to sign up so that you're a registered member, <laughs> <laughs> we actually have a website that's goldenmotorcyclegang.com. You can go there and put in your email address. We just posted a life purpose exercise because a lot of people we have been talking to, especially on the call-in shows, have been saying, well, I don't know what my life purpose is. So we went, oh, we better put that in there. And it's an exercise I use in my seminars. It's written up. It's very simple. It takes about five minutes to do. And you can literally get clear about your life purpose so then you can cooperate with it and be part of this shift that's occurring uh, in this uh, shift from the old to the new. Mm-hmm. Bill, what is the um, significance of 2012? Uh, you wrote a whole novel about it. Um, what are the, the similarities and, and the synchronicities that, that happened to you that brought you and compelled you to share this story? Well, 2012 is an amazing event. It marks the end of a 26,000-year cycle. It coincides with the end of the long count Mayan calendar. But it also is indicated in other traditions that a major cycle is coming to an end. Not necessarily all of these cultures have chosen December 21st, 2012. One of the remarkable things that scientists learned only a few decades ago is that there's a wobble in the rotation of our planet that takes 26,000 years to come to a complete revolution. So there are some scientific evidence that supports the idea of 2012. But more importantly, December 21st, 2012 can be used, as Barbara Marks Hubbard says, as a date to mark and celebrate and create a new Earth, what she calls the, the new Earth birthday, mm-hmm. and to, to use well, this date in a positive way. Now, in my own life, it, there's amazing synchronicities that led me to understand that I do have a direct personal relationship with this date. When I was writing my novel, I gave the main character my own birthday, and it was only when I was in sort of the second draft of the novel that it was pointed out to me by a numerologist that my actual birthday has the exact same frequency as the December 21st, 2012 date. So that was the first synchronicity. And then the second was at the time that I had completed the first draft of the manuscript, unsolicited, Jose Arguelles's, uh partner, Stephanie South, sent me his autobiography, or his biography, because she actually wrote it. And I then sent her my draft of the 12, and said, you know, I really respect Jose. He created the harmonic convergence. He's sort of the best-known popularizer of 2012. I'd love to know his thoughts about my novel. And he wrote back to me about three weeks later and said, I don't even know why I sat down and read the 12, because I'm so busy with my own work, and I'm certainly too busy to read a novel that somebody else has written. But for some reason, I had a compulsion. I started reading it. It was very easy to read. I enjoyed it. And I have to tell you that in a parallel universe, you are a mirror of me. I feel that my entire purpose in being a human being is to have come to bring the message that 2012 is about positive change and positive transformation, and you and your novel have achieved that same message, so I just want to thank you for writing the novel. So that then links to Jack and his story of the Golden Motorcycle Gang of positive transformation and his entire life's work through creation of the Transformational Leadership Council of encouraging people who do focus on how we actually do transform our consciousness. And it's my belief that Barbara Marks Hubbard and space she has held for 40 years as the proponent of conscious evolution is really a 
key visionary in leading us to how we actually cooperate together rather than just with our individual stories to create a new story, a new story of what it means to be a conscious planetary citizen and how we can use that new awareness to actually solve the problems that we as human beings have created, which need to be solved very quickly if we are, in fact, to have a sustainable planet that works for all 7 billion people. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I I just, uh, as a side note, I want to tell you, Bill, that I actually bought your book, paid money for it, and considering that I get dozens of books a week to review, for me to actually buy a book is very unusual. Well, thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) And I really enjoyed it. Um, I just want to say that if you've joined us, that we are speaking with Jack Hanfield and William Gladstone about their new book, The Golden Motorcycle Gang. Um, you've been talking about uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard, who um, I, I interviewed a number of years ago. What a fantastic human being. Um, tell us more about uh, the, the how you came to become involved and the role that she is playing in the Golden Motorcycle Gang. Why don't you speak to that, Bill? Okay. Well, I've known Barbara for about 15 years, and you know, I read all of her books, and I became her agent only you know, about 10 years ago. I just was an admirer of her work. So we had a relationship you know, through that. Then um, I happened to be invited to her birthday party, her 80th birthday party, which was hosted at Jack's house. I didn't even know that Barbara and Jack were friends, let alone that Jack, like I, was a great admirer of her work. And so when we were writing the first draft of the Golden Motorcycle Gang, Jack had some things come up where I wasn't able to communicate with him. I was actually in Kauai, and I had set aside two weeks to finish the the novel, and Jack had set aside some time to, to speak with me, but unfortunately, he had to reschedule. So I had two weeks and say, well, I'm not sure exactly how I should, you know, go where I should go with the last third of the novel. And I started thinking about the party at Jack's and how Barbara had played such an important role for both of us. And so that sort of gave me the direction to finish the novel and tie it into Barbara's work and the importance of 2012. And of course, without Jack being able to, to guide me, that draft was a little bit rough. So we had to have a meeting in Santa Barbara and uh, Barbara Marks Hubbard joined us at Jack's house, and I think that was really a pivotal meeting. And in some ways, I almost feel that Barbara's a co-author of the book because it was really her energy and her guidance that sort of brought these disparate stories together into one unified story. And I, I have to say, remarkably, what started out as sort of two different stories, Barbara's story and Jack's story, really does dovetail, and actually three stories, my story with my near death, really into a unified view of how everything does link together and how this 2012 event, if you will, can be a catalyst to take Jack's work and the work of all the other leaders of transformation to a new level to allow them to connect in a way that really can be sustainable for decades to come. You know, the the book reads like a who's who of the human potential movement. Do you think that there are any you know, younger people of such stature coming up the ranks today? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we did in our Transformational Leadership Council, uh, which we, I started six years ago, of leaders that do this work, and there are a lot of them are what I call members of the Golden Motorcycle Gang, 
we just recently at our, one of our board meetings said, you know, we really need to start identifying the younger people who are doing this kind of work. And there's all kinds of them out there. Ocean Robbins, who's a uh, heir to the Baskin Robbins uh, ice cream fortune, uh, is out there teaching people to live sustainable lives and to have better health and to eat better and so forth. Uh, he's a bright, brilliant young man. I was with a young man named Napoon the other day who's very tapped into the uh, Occupy Oakland movement, totally spiritually conscious. He was uh, living in South Africa, went to a conference in Israel, uh, just ended up there by accident and, and was totally transformed and is doing this work. I, I know another guy who's down in uh, Costa Rica, young 25-year-old who uh, is doing work that's profound, and we see that all over the place. Uh, they're not known as well because they haven't written, they haven't written books yet, uh, but that's changing. They're, they're, they're starting to be in the movies and books on television, and their work is getting known. So it's just a matter of time before we see this, this generation of leaders from the younger uh, you know, group that are, that are doing similar work, very powerful work all over the planet. That reminds me of the different motorcycle gangs that you describe in the book. You've got your silver, your gold, and the diamond coming up. Yeah, basically in the book I talk about my age group being the gold motorcycle gang. And there was a group before us, uh, Stuart Emery, who was the uh, CEO of uh, EST, which later became Landmark Forum Trainings, uh, people like that, Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, silver. And then this younger group we call the Diamonds because I think the real work that's going to have to be done is going to be done more by that generation than our own. Uh, and so, yes, exactly. It's, it's, I don't know what comes after Diamond. Maybe Platinum. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Maybe we won't need them by then. Maybe you know, it'll all be light. I was just saying, I, I think you, I was just about to say something similar. You know, all these indigo children that we hear about coming into the world uh, who are, uh, you know, spiritually evolved kids that are eight years old saying things and, and, and dictating books that their parents are then publishing, uh, they're very, very high consciousness. My youngest son, uh, 21 years old, uh, was a kid who would always be breaking up fights on the playground, always be you know writing songs and visualizing and writing little novels and stuff, uh, very spiritually evolved, and not because of me, because of who he was when he came in. Mm-hmm. And he chose you to come in. To be his father. Yes. So, <laughs> um, so is this the conscious evolution that you think Barbara is talking about? Yeah, I think that conscious evolution is described as evolution by choice, not chance. We're the first time in history where there's a species that has enough cognitive ability and spiritual intuitive ability to actually begin guiding through conscious willful choice to cooperate with this evolutionary impulse that's happening uh, there's a, a desire for evolution basically occurs when systems and organisms become more complex. They have to join together to survive. And originally we had families, we had clans, we had groups, uh, you know, villages uh, around a king and a castle and then nation states. And now we really have to come to one humanity. And uh, I think that uh, we're all tuning into that. And when you tune into that and cooperate with it, then you get conscious evolution rather than unconscious evolution where you're dragged through it. I think Shakespeare once said uh, you can be dragged through your life or you can consciously and willfully walk along with it, you know, and, and it's a lot less pain when you do that. Mm. And yet we're, we are seeing a lot of pain today, and I'm, I'm wondering how uh, necessary the, the breaking up, the, the painful breaking up of the old systems is. 
um, to human progress? Well, I think pain is required. It's just like a, when you birth a baby, any woman will tell you it was painful. Oh, yeah. And so, but if you have a midwife that's there with you, that, you know, either Bradley or Lamaze or whatever training you might have taken, they teach you how to breathe. They teach you when to relax, when to push. They tell you what stage you're at so you're not freaked out, uh, that it's never going to end. And I think the same thing is true now, that systems, in, in life, systems have to decrystallize and then recrystallize at a higher level. If anyone's ever remodeled a home, they know how painful that can be, and yet the result is a better home. And so systems are falling apart. Financial systems, the education system doesn't really work anymore. We see some cities with dropout rates of 50%. Kids are not happy. They're in high states of anxiety, the highest suicide rates we've ever had in the world in North America. And so basically these systems have to fall apart. Now we can create alternative systems alongside of them or we can start to restructure those bigger systems, but they will fall apart due to the fact that they don't work, just like dinosaurs died out because they were no longer sustainable. Mm -hmm. What do you see as our best hope for making the transition? I'll let Bill answer that one and then I'll jump in. Well, I think... It's doing what we're doing, actually. I think that we're on the right path. I don't think anyone needs to think that they have to take heroic action. They just have to have integrity, character, and courage. And they have to go within first and connect to what their highest possible gift is and then share that gift with the world. And that can be as private as caring for your own children. It can be more public, working in an animal shelter. It can be more it, you know, international in terms of joining some of the groups that we've listed in the appendices to the uh, Golden Motorcycle Gang. It can be joining Push for Peace, uh, the Pachamama Alliance, any of these organizations, which will give you the resources so that you can make a bigger difference in whatever way is best and most meaningful to you as an individual. The problems are huge, and you're not going to solve them overnight. No one alone can solve them. But each and every one of us working first on our own individual balance and stability and coming to center with our own knowing and our own awareness is the place to start. And then not just sit on that, but you have to take action. And what that action is, it's not for Jack or I to tell any individual, but just to say, find what you are most joyful in doing and most effective in doing and do it and do it all out. And don't give up. The most important thing is not to give up. Along the way, there are going to be failures. There are going to be instances. I think Jack and I can both uh, you know, attest to situations where we have been rejected many times, dozens of times, hundreds of times, and yet through perseverance, we have been able to achieve our goals. I think that same kind of drive and focus now needs to apply on an international community level to start tackling some of these huge problems, which alone seem insurmountable, but with the resources brought together through our communications and the internet, I think can actually be solved within our lifetimes. You know, in the book, Barbara Marks Hubbard, uh, much like uh, Bill's near-death experience and my golden motorcycle vision, she talks about her experience of uh, being in a kind of deep meditation, and uh, she found herself in the Elysian Fields, which is uh, part of the Greek mythology where you have you know, Aristotle and Plato and people like that showing up in her vision along with the Greek gods. And she was given um, five questions to think about. 
And question number four was, what do you do best in the world that only you can do? And so each of us has a unique set of talents and gifts that no one else in the world has that same combination, that same DNA spiritually and emotionally and physically and mentally. And so basically what happens is that we're all being asked to say, what can I do? Is it serving in a hospice? Is it working in an animal shelter, as Bill said? Is it playing a harp for people that are in the hospital? Is it going out and running a business with integrity instead of trying to screw people over? Uh, you know, whatever it is that you do that's uniquely you, like I am an aggregator of people, an aggregator of stories like the chicken soup for the soul, an aggregator of techniques like in my book, The Success Principles. And I do that in a unique way that no one else in the world can do the same way. And that is my gift. And if I do my gift fully and everybody does their gift fully, much like every cell in the human body working, the, the kidney cells, the liver cells, the brain cells, etc., then the whole world will work. We have to come from what can I contribute rather than from what can I get. And when we change to that, we find that people are happier, their lives are more meaningful, they live longer, their relationships are better, and, and what they do is effective. I was just so pleased with uh, the, the particularly the end of the book where so many spiritual books nowadays kind of get to this emotional impact and then you know, you're, you're left to say, okay, now what? In this book, you give chapter and verse, now what? Go out and get active. I love what you just said, Bill, about the, the three qualities of integrity, character, and courage. Three qualities that seem amazingly lacking amongst our politicians. Unfortunately, that is the case today. It's really sad. Those should be, that's what a leader is, someone who lives in integrity and courage and perseverance and we're, we're not seeing much of it and, and it, it, it's really lacking and I hope it changes soon. You know what's interesting though, I, I just did a, the Evolutionary Leaders Conference up in Calistoga and one of the guys there uh, wrote a book on global citizenship and he told me that he had been working with Congress and they had two retreats, uh, over 200 congressional uh, members of Congress, and that they got together and he did a set of processes where they really started telling the truth about themselves. Most politicians actually went into politics with a vision of helping make the world work better. And along the way, they got corrupted by the system that requires them to raise tons of money to buy television ads, which is the only way you can reach large numbers of people. Uh, Barack Obama in his book talked about how if he does one television ad on the most least watched television station in Chicago, he'll reach more people than he could do if he had a daily meeting of uh, five or 600 people across the state all day long meeting in small groups. So what's happened, the infusion of money from the people who have it, called the rich, the corporations, the oil companies, the pharmaceutical companies, the banks, the investment people, etc., has corrupted the system. And so these people at this meeting really wanted to go back and change it. And they all agreed it wasn't working. It had to be changed. 200 people. That's the majority of our Congress. And yet when they went back, the party leaders were so entrenched that they stopped them from making those changes because they were so dependent on the money from these large groups. So basically, until we change that, it's hard for these people to be courageous when they know that if they stand up, they're basically going to get squashed. Mm -hmm. So we have to come together. And like the people on Wall Street and Occupy Wall Street are doing, they're saying – 
we demand that you start to change this system. It's just a very nascent organization right now. But I think little by little we're going to see that grow as people realize how the game really works and demand that it change. There was an interesting interview on Charlie Rose within the last few days. Mm -hmm. I think that the guy's name was Lessig, who came up with a suggestion that um, we actually create a tax rebate of $50 to every taxpayer um, that they can use to contribute to the, the politician or party of their choice, and they can top it up up to another $100. And that would totally eliminate uh, by, by several times over the, the need for um, corporate money and, and uh, grace and favor or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, no question. That would be a great – I mean, th- there's no lack of good ideas. There's just a lack of people. People have to eventually realize they have to let go of something and trust that the new thing is going to be better. It's like a trapeze artist. You have to let go of the trapeze and trust that when you finish your flip, the other guy is going to be there with his hands out. Mm-hmm. That requires, as Bill said, courage. And, yes. Uh, yeah, and, I do think but, it is about courage. I think everything Jack just said I agree with. But at the same time, I think – it does require tremendous courage to risk it all. And I think that our present politicians may have entered politics with the right intentions. And I think each and every one of them is basically a good human being. But I think that they are lacking courage because they do need to, to stand up when they when, you know, OK, leader, I see that it's going to be bad for our party or bad for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And if I get thrown out of office, so be it. That is not happening. People don't have the level of courage that I think is really necessary. And, and I don't fault anyone. I'm not sure that I would have that level of courage. But if you look back in history, whether it's a Mahatma Gandhi or a Martin Luther King, there were people who did arise. And in each case, I think when you examine why they were so successful, the component of courage was right at the center of what made them great. Well, there's individual courage and institutional courage. And, uh, you know, I think, I think both are lacking. The, the, it seems to me that most institutions place as their primary focus just remaining in power. It's a power game. Survival, yes. Just pure survival rather than and, – and even, you know, you look at our, our wonderful world religions. All of them were started by wonderful charismatic teachers. And then when the teachers left, the administrators took over and it became more about perpetuating the power of the organization than the teachings themselves. And I think we see this in almost all of our institutions today. And, you know, this is what has to change. It's just not working. But that's what's so exciting about this time. You do get the feeling that change is possible with with so many people like you just articulating it and giving people some indication of where they can go to gather how they can actually effect change, I think is fabulous. No, I think. Go ahead, Bill. <laughs> I'm just going to say I, I agree with you, and that is why. I mean, it, it was curious. When we turned the manuscript into Hay House, they said, well, this is a novel, isn't it? I said, yes. I said, well, we never published a novel with an appendix, and you've got seven of them. I said, no, <laughs> we would have had ten, but we decided we didn't want to overwhelm you. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Jack? I don't even remember now. Okay. Well, let's talk about the birthday party. Okay. Bill and Barbara share almost share a birthday. 
and you'll be sharing a celebration on a global scale next year. Tell us about the birthday party for humanity that you've planned. Well, it's not just us planning it. There's, you know, Unify Earth, there's the Rainbow Bridge, there's many organizations that are all planning events on December 21st and 22nd, 2012. As I said before, you don't have to believe the Mayan calendar. You just have to realize that we do need to mark this change. We happen to believe there's a real change, a real vibrational change that really is the end of a 26,000-year cycle. But whether you believe that or not doesn't really matter. Use this day to come together with focused intentionality that we will have a better world that works for everyone. I just participated, and Jack participated through video, in something called PeaceLink Live that took place on 11-11-11. And we had over a 1,000 people, musical acts, great speakers, and it was all focused on peace. And that event was really a kind of dry run of what I'd like to see happen in a million different locations. You had a, a million celebrations of a thousand people each, that's a billion people. Now we may not reach the goal of a million celebrations, but even if we have only a thousand, only a thousand celebrations, you'd still reach a million people. And I'm sure we're gonna have more than a thousand. So 10,000, you reach 10 million people. We will reach at least that number of people. And that, according to HeartMath and other organizations that measure human activity, is probably enough to actually make an actual difference in the way the energy on this planet is going to be for the next 26,000 years. That's our goal. And the goal is not just the celebration. We want to have a great party, but we want it to be the first of an annual event. And we want the people that participate, whether it's a million or 10 million or even 100 million people, to, after the event, go to the websites that each of these organizations are creating or have created so that they can be in dialogue and continue to work together to share what is working in their communities with the world at large. Tell us about the five questions that we can use to identify members of the Golden Motorcycle Gang. Well, these are five. I think you can identify yourself just by self-selection and say, I want to be part of this because I want to contribute to making a difference at this time in history that we're all in. But the five questions come from Barbara's experience uh, when she had this Elysian field uh, reality where she was in this state of meditation and this, these questions. And, and they, they literally came to her and she wrote them down in her journal. And then she pulled it out years later and went, oh, my gosh, this really is what we all need to be asking ourselves. Number one was, what do you know of the original plan? See, a lot of us believe there is some kind of unfoldment that has some kind of plan to it. And that uh, some people are tapped into that, that they know that. Not everyone does. Uh, some people do. Some people are just kind of tapping into what's emerging now. The second question was, do you have any memory of having volunteered to go to Earth at this particular time? Well, just like my gold motorcycle gang experience, <clears throat> excuse me, I did have a memory of choosing to come to Earth. And we're finding in the research that's being done now with hypnotic age regression, that every one of us actually chose to be born at this time. We chose our parents, we chose our gender, our race, etc. So there is a choice. But do you remember that? A lot of people do. Number three, if so, do you remember your contract? Did you remember what you chose to come here to do? Number four, what do you do best in the world that only you can do? And then number five, what are you to do now? And what other needs and tools and resources do you need to do it? So if you know what you're here to do and you say, I'm, I'm clearly 
what I need now is to get hooked up with these people or I need to learn how to use the internet or I need to learn how to communicate so I can write a book. Whatever it is, there are people that are committed to this that are standing by ready to help if you'll just ask. And people are coming together in groups uh, to support each other in taking these next steps of fulfilling their life purpose. I do commend to our readers the appendices at the back of your book. It's full of amazing resources. Um, can, can you uh, describe some of them that you particularly would sure. encourage people to visit? Sure. I think one of the best ones and most powerful ones is the Transformational Leadership Council, which I started. Uh, there's about 120 members that are all involved in doing uh, transformational work. Uh, you can go to our website, uh, transformationalleadershipcouncil.com. We're starting now groups of people called the ATL, Association for Transformational Leaders, which are on a more local basis. Uh, they're happening in Chicago and Toronto and L.A. and San Francisco uh, so that we can take this work out further and further. We're also looking uh, at we've got groups like the Pachamama Alliance, which is started by Lynn Twist, which is doing work all around the world to raise consciousness about um, you know, uh, sustainability and social justice. To give you an example, the country of Ecuador just asked Lynn to run uh, trainings, to develop trainings and run them in there for a million people to go through this symposium that they do to help people um, go and to be, live more sustainable lives. We also know that there's a group called Bioneers, which is are people that are totally committed to living more sustainable lives in, 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 in the earth. You have huge conferences. Anybody can become a member. There is the um, uh, Shift Network, which is a, a group of people that are really committing their lives to facilitating this shift that we're talking about in 2012. Um, there's the uh, International Club of Budapest, which uh, I'll let Bill talk about because he's on the board of that. Bill? Yeah, the, the Club of Budapest is a very interesting organization. Our biggest initiative right now is to have our our founder, Dr. Irvin Laszlo, serve as the chancellor of the Giordano Bruno University, which is a university that is being designed as an online platform for higher education where no course will cost more than $100 and where there will be affiliations with universities throughout the world to give accreditation. And one of the unique aspects of this university is it is about changing the paradigm. You'll learn not just what is being taught in universities today, but also from an entirely different point of view, where you'll be a story creator, not just a story dweller. But we'll get into more of that for people who want to go to the website, and that university will be launching sometime in 2012. And the website again? Uh, well, the club of Budapest.com for that. But um, the, the Giordano Bruno University uh, website is just is not up quite yet, so I'm not sure exactly who uh -huh. you are. I interviewed Dr. Laszlo last month. Amazing, amazing personality. Well, you know, I, I can't tell you how um, my heart is really, really swelling with, with hope and, and possibility. Just um, when you hear all of these initiatives. Oh, there was the, the Evolver initiative, too, Daniel Pinchbeck's thing. Mm -hmm. All of these initiatives that are happening... Um, you really, you really, there's a palpable sense of possibility. And I can't thank you enough for all that you two are doing to, to make this happen. So thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, certainly my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.
Yeah, and definitely you're a member of the gang. <laughs> I've always wanted to be a gang member. <laughs> there you go. Oh, great. Well, listeners, I hope you'll join us next week on New Consciousness Review when my guest will be Cindy Dale, author of the Intu- Intuition Guidebook, How to Safely and Wisely Use Your Sixth Sense. And maybe you'll find out you're a member of the gang, too. You'll find all our interviews on our website at ncreview.com. Now it's time for our track of the week, and we have a special treat for the stressed out among you. It's called Come Back by sound healer Alea Dow. Oh, I know. 
That was Come Back by Alea Dow, a sound healer and energy practitioner whose music takes people into states of higher consciousness, awakening them a sense of deep connection and of coming home. To find out more about Alea's music, go to aleadao.com. That's A-L-E-Y-A-D-A-O dot com. Well, if you enjoyed our show, visit our website, ncreview.com, your destination for inspiring media for personal and global transformation. I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. 